Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Sprague. Welcome to Somewhere in the Skies. I'm your host, Ryan Sprague. Well, last weekend was an absolute whirlwind as I headed northeast to the maritime province of Nova Scotia. Halifax, to be exact. I gave a presentation at the inaugural Esotericon, hosted by local filmmaker, author, and all-around amazing Nova Scotian, Paul Kimball. Kimball wrangled together a group of UFO, paranormal, and esoteric misfits to give our thoughts on what the hell is going on in this crazy world we call home. We even got to see Stan T. Friedman, the father of ufology, give his last ever presentation before his official retirement from the lecture circuit. It was a memorable, emotional, and plain fun ride. Compliments of our northern neighbors. The weekend consisted of talks ranging from flat earthers, consciousness, mysticism, mythology, and UFO lore, witness and experiencer stories, ghosts, demons, and even some sea monsters. That last one was actually an inside joke to anyone who attended the event. Apologies to the rest of you. But fear not for those who weren't in attendance, because today I have three of the speakers on the show as we sit down after the conference has commenced to chat about the weekend's offerings, what we talked about, what we learned, and where we may be heading in the weird world of esoterica. My guests include Micah Hanks, Walter Bosley, and Aaron Gullius. This conversation was originally recorded by Micah for his wonderful show, The Graylian Report, but that didn't stop us all from sharing the fun across all of our podcasts. So sit back, relax, and pop open a Labatt Blue or Molson Canadian and hear all about, oh, sorry, all about the 2018 Esotericon. Sorry to all my Canadians out there, I couldn't resist. And I gotta tell you, it was wonderful being up here, not just the weather, not just the cuisine, but the company as well. And I have a few of these fine fellows right here with me right now for a bit of a roundtable discussion. We will go clockwise, starting to my right, my friend and companion of many uh, ages, I think. We've done a lot of traveling over the years and had some adventures. Mr. Ryan Sprague of the Somewhere in the Skies podcast. How you doing there, man? Awesome, man. It feels so good to wrap things up. You know, the nerves get to you. You never (laughs) know what to expect when you get to these things. But I have noticed the past, my last two conferences have been in 
uh, Nova Scotia, and you could not ask for a better crowd. Oh, definitely of open-minded people. Although I will say, with all the walking we've been doing the last few days, I got in today, and first thing I said, "Boy, are my dogs tired!" You know, <laughs> I, I I don't think I could have walked anymore. But anywho, getting back around to those on the table here with us on the on the table, the panel, the discussion. Mr. Aaron Gullius also joins us. Yeah. The Saucer the Life. Saucer Life. Yeah. Now, this is a new podcast that you're doing, man. You've written so many books. But when I saw that you were getting into podcasting, too, I thought, boy, we've already got a lot to talk about. Add yeah. that to the plate, too. Yeah, I've been doing it since August. Um, I think I'm about 34 episodes. Wow. Uh, it's, wow. It's, it's pretty consistently around every 10 days now. Of course, once school starts back up in the fall, I'm not sure if I'm going to be <laughs> able to, to maintain that. But, uh, yeah, it, it's, been, it's been great to be out here. It's, uh, it's been great to meet, meet some people at the thing this weekend who listen to the show, which is always weird. You know, when you, uh, oh, just when you meet people in real life that, you know, uh, Jordan Bonaparte of the uh, yeah. Nighttime Podcast, he, he's like, like, I'm hoping to be out there. I'm like, that'd be cool. Yeah. So, um, yeah, great to be out here. Great to meet you three in person. Um, uh, the other guys uh, and on the show, um, I've met all of them. It's just you you guys and uh, Holly Stevens I hadn't met before. That's so right. It's, it's great to meet you guys in person. New connection. Speaking of people, I had never met you before, Aaron, mm-hmm. although you'd been a uh, guest on the Grayley right. Report in the past. Right. And, of course, you know, Ryan, you've been on many times. Another guy who had been on the show in the past, who I was very eager to meet, and I'm still jonesing because he's sitting right next to me now, Walter <laughs> Bosley yeah. right here, one of my favorite guys. And now I I can say we've actually shared some space. Yeah, enjoyed a few fine beverages as well. So I, I hope you've enjoyed the weekend as much. Oh as we yeah, have. I just realized seriously a few moments ago. It just dawned on me today's Sunday. Yeah, yeah. You know, it just and when you go to these things, it's like um, you know, if you go to Vegas, you're in the casino. You don't know what time of day it is. When you go to events like this and you're hanging out and you're doing the event, you you forget what day it is. Mm-hmm. And it just I just remembered a few minutes ago, oh, yeah, this is Sunday. The weekend's over. But. I've always heard those stories, you know. And it's a good sign. Uh-huh. It was a great a great event. So. Well, that's been something that's been on my weekend uh, or on my mind all weekend is, uh, you know, time. Literally because it came up so many times in different discussions with people. You know, Ryan, you and I had been riffing on this a little bit back at the venue. Yeah. Holly, as she was driving us back, Holly and I were talking about human perception of time. And the idea of experiencing in the moment an, an event or occurrence that mm-hmm. 50 years from now will be a memory. I tell you, there were some memories in the making this weekend as we were seeing off here in his sunset years professionally and otherwise Mr. Stanton Friedman talk about a career 84 years old and he got up and gave another just an incredible lecture. Another thing we have are physical trace cases. You know, police look for fingerprints and footprints. Well, we ufologists, that's ufologists, not ufologists, (laughs) Uh, look for physical trace cases. A guy named Ted Phillips in Missouri has collected several thousand physical trace cases from at least 80 countries. These are cases in which the saucer is seen on or near the ground, and after it leaves, one finds physical changes, the equivalent of burn surface, burn rings, landing gear marks. This is one in Delphos, Kansas. The soil has changed down about 10 inches. And the soil in the ring, I measured, had the composition measured of the soil in the ring and in the, from the surrounding area. Higher level of soluble minerals. Definite physical traces associated with the presence of a flying saucer. It was, it was so neat to be in the company of all you guys, but seeing Stanton kind of winding things down just was almost surreal for me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, I was Jeez, just going to add to that. Um, 
you know, full circle. This was the first lecture he ever, ever gave. UFOs are real. Oh, and is that what it was? I'm sorry. Yeah. Flying saucers. Fly, I apologize. Are real. Yeah, he's, yeah. Always, he's old school. He's always stuck with the flying saucers nomenclature. But no, so that was his first lecture. That was his first that lecture was, ever, and was, it was yeah. the one he gave to us in Halifax this weekend. That makes it even wow, more that's, that's, What I like is, you know, he's got this good energy about him and a good sense of humor. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. he's just real relaxed about the subject, and, and just he just was... Going along, you know. You know, yeah. he, and he's had some of the most famous detractors over the years. Uh, no less among them, Philip J. Class, mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's always remained in such good humor about yes. things yes. like that. I, yeah. I've had only eleven hecklers in my entire <laughs> career, awesome. you know? And then Tim Banal, who's not here with us at the moment, but he may come walking in at any time now. He's like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't think he even sleeps. Hey guys, <laughs> he might have been in the trunk of our car. Yeah, or he was hanging on underneath it, Big Trouble in Little China style, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Banal is a creature. I think, you know, if anyone wants proof that alien life exists, go no further than Banal. That's why they call him the Banal of America. I say call him Banal of the Universe. But speaking of universal subjects, again, I think something that we all kind of share in common is UFOs. Although, of course, um, you know, you, Ryan, and uh, you, Aaron, were talking about UFOs. Mm-hmm. Uh, Walter, you were kind of talking about the investigative processes that you apply to your own research. and stuff yeah. like that, especially. Yeah, and I was looking... Again, it altered states of consciousness and mysticism and the idea of altered states in relation especially to mirrors. So we brought a diverse array of topics together. But but UFOs, I think, are fundamentally a subject that we all really share an interest in, all of us. Paul Kimball, of course, our, our kind host who brought us all up here for the Esotericon. Let's start with you, Aaron. Yeah. Uh, you gave, i got to tell you, i got to pay you some compliments right here while we're talking. <laughs> Your lecture knocked my socks off, man. Let, Thank you. For folks who don't know a little bit about Aaron, uh, let's get some background because you are a professional history teacher, a professor, yeah. educator. And and an historical researcher, and this all comes into play with your UFO research, which I love. Yeah, I, I teach history at a, a community college in, in Flint, Michigan, and uh, so how's the water up there, by the way? The, the water is not is not great, Mike. Yeah. How is uh, that even possible? I, I, I <laughs> at this point, it yeah. is not possible for me to get started. Yeah, that's um, a long yeah. Well, yeah. Well, well, um, yeah well. But uh, but yeah, so it's I uh, I, I teach history. Um, Generally, I've been teaching a lot of world history lately, but uh, but I'm I'm switching back to to, to U.S. because I'm getting I'm getting burned out. I, I'm I'm the senior person, so I can I pick my schedule first. Yeah. So I'm like, eh, ancient world is getting a little dull. I'm going to switch over to modern. Oh come on, does it never really get dull? Wait, we haven't gotten to that part of the conversation. We'll get back around to that later. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> Tangent it gets dull covering fifteen thousand years in fifteen weeks. Sure, that, that's I get you. that's a grind. Yeah. Um, so I uh, I teach history for a living, and um, I I, I I write on the side um, mostly about uh, four books on paranormally type subjects. One book about on on history education topics, just to just to prove it wasn't all flying saucers. I, I want to read that book actually. Yeah. I like it. That's the I, book. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Again, looking at, you're looking at microfilm, looking at visual, looking like- at industrial films and educational films that were shown in school. Things like what to do on a date. And teaching and, history through these yeah. things. So instead of, instead of a primary source that students would read about, you know, you know how kids lived, they would watch a film. And I say, you know, young college students your age were shown this film as part of the curriculum in their college health and wellness class. Yeah. <laughs> and what does this... What does this say about gender roles in 1952? Oh, what yeah. does it say about race? 
not much because everybody was white. Um, <laughs> that's, that's actually a tangent here, but it's sure. interesting because students, this last semester, students did point out, like, we've watched a bunch of these, and they had to, like, choose one of their own and write a paper about it for an assignment. They said, why, is ev- why are there no non-white people? And I said it ended up being practical. Um, there were some companies that did film uh, these these films with with a with a multiracial cast the companies that were located in northern states did that but they found that southern school systems refused to purchase films for the classroom mm. that didn't that had non-white cast members right and so rather than have one group of films for one part of the country and one group of films for another it was more it was more economical to and honestly speaking of, of economical if you watch some of these things anything by 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 Cornette, uh, you'll notice that the same three like thirty year olds play high schoolers every right. single one. And I notice uh, Ryan's laptop has the the Mystery Science Theater uh, silhouette. And I've, I've got to say that that if you read the book, what you'll notice is that most of the film, most of the shorts I watched, I picked ones that I could watch the MST3 yes. version of. <laughs> I've seen more entertainment. Yeah. Well, and, and, but there's some additional uh, cultural commentary, I'm sure, that comes there too. I got to carry this over into the discussion of the contactee era because mm-hmm. you looked at a broad area of of history spanning the last several decades in your talk today about UFOs. One thing that you definitely noticed, you brought uh, to the attention of those present today, Ashtar, this particular yeah. character, but a lot of those contact the alleged uh, alien beings from the contactee era. Again, once once you really look at them in the cultural context. Is it really a big surprise to you that most of these guys are again Caucasian, blonde haired, blue eyes? You know this. That, no. that same sort of thing was reflected, I think, also in the in the fringe culture of that era, yeah. as much as it was in like you described, you know, videos, educational videos, and otherwise. You know, you can you can take uh, you can take some of the contactees, and they they are in a lot of ways just as much a, a distinctly observable '50s subculture as the Beats. For example, you, you can sort of you can here's a category, um, and and just like uh, just like the beats, there are there are there, there is more variation than we sometimes think uh, mm-hmm. as, as far as as far as race and, and contactees. Uh, the musician Sun Ra uh, had had contact experiences that he talked about. Um, there is Elijah Muhammad. And oh, the oh, yeah. nation of Islam. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there are things that Muhammad Ali. Uh, Muhammad Ali. Yeah. yeah, and and so there's there's variation, uh, but the the variation the variation didn't work for the talk I was giving. Oh, sure. So so that's you know this is the sort of thing like I want to talk about it. Oh, well, see that's why I'm asking <laughs> about it now because yeah. I mean again there's so much that could be discussed. Now you know, again one of the focuses of your talk, Aaron, had to do with this very unique memorandum. Was it? Correct me if I'm wrong. 1954. Yeah, a letter. Yeah, mm-hmm. sort of yeah. a letter from a guy, named, a metaphysical researcher named Gerald Light, mm-hmm. to uh, another metaphysical researcher named Mead Lane, who mm-hmm. ran the Borderland yeah. Sciences Research Associates, and it detailed Light's account of a meeting at uh, Muroc Field, Edwards Air Force Base, in February of '54 between President Eisenhower and some what Light called Ethereans, which was sort of the BSRAs. Sort of. I thought it was a kind of cryptocurrency, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a new one. How's that going? Uh, what goes around comes around. Yeah, um, yeah. The Ethereans, you know, the Ethereans really dropped in value. Um, but um, the, the Ethereans were—it's hard to explain. They weren't from another planet. They weren't from another dimension. They were from another world that existed alongside ours, but at a different density. It is sort of the way they explained it. And this idea actually emerges. 
slightly before the flying saucer stuff. I always knew we Earthlings were kind of dense. So, so there's this description of a meeting with, with Eisenhower and the aliens, and, and this letter gets picked up decades later by conspiracy conspiracists like like uh, Bill Cooper and oh, Phil yeah. Schneider, and and then gets picked up by by the by some disclosure guys, and it becomes sort of this idea of there was a treaty between the U.S. and and the aliens um, becomes part and parcel of the whole thing. You, Walter this needs resonates to say something. with the the story my dad had told me for decades that he was told about what crashed at Roswell and who they were, and then the fact that it had happened again, according to his story in 1958, which of which he was part of the retrieval of. Oh. And so what I'm thinking is, whatever psyop or disinfo was the origin of this letter, you know, if it was such, if it was right. disinfo, might have been the same source as, you know, what my dad and those guys were told. Kind of like the go-to lore or legend they were using Right. To cover something else. Well, it gets really confusing at times because, again, you know, there's the one half that we all are hopeful for, which is some reality behind the phenomenon. Then there's the recognition and, I think, the acceptance, truly, and the historical precedent for uh, an element of disinformation. Right. And also, in the whole time I was listening to your talk, and I'll get over to you here in a moment too, Walter, but, you know, Aaron, in your, in your talk today, I'm seeing this progression of myth that begins with letters and correspondences between friends that involve Eisenhower, mm-hmm. aliens touching down... And then the promulgation of that and its manifestation, some might say regurgitation, yep. and reappearance later on in MJ-12. During the 1980s, three things emerged in the flying saucer subculture that would shape it for decades to come, right until the present. Each of these things could be a whole talk in themselves, and, and, and so I'm just going to sort of summarize them. But first is the the appearance, revelation of a collection of documents discussing a group called MJ-12. If you were here for um, for Stan's talk last night, you heard about Majestic 12, MJ-12, this think tank control group of scientists and military intelligence personnel who were supposedly overseeing the flying saucer mystery, managing American contact with ET. The second thing that emerges and becomes prominent in the 1980s, emerges earlier, becomes prominent in the 80s, is the abduction which sort of gives rise to a popular image of alien contact that's often violent and invasive. And the third was a dis- and you heard about this yesterday too a bit, a disinformation campaign waged against New Mexico businessman named Paul Bennett, who, um, according to those who've investigated, like Fred Bishop in Project Beta, uh, Benowitz had seen what he thought to be possible UFOs, more likely some sort of secret Air Force experimentation, equipment, weapons, technology. Um, agents, according to the, the research done, agents of the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, but not Walter, um, <laughs> um, embarked on a mission to lead Benowitz away from, from what he really saw toward an explanation that was more suited to their purposes. And one of the people involved with this was a man named Bill Moore, a UFO investigator who had gotten gotten wrapped up in this. In the 1992 interview, in, uh, I think, in Greg's, uh, with Greg in Excluded Middle Magazine, more outlined the elements of the disinformation campaign, uh, or the disinformation that Benowitz had encountered. It included, quote, the whole story of government alien involvement, treaties with aliens, underground bases, a plot to take over the planet, implants, two different races of alliances, one aliens, one hostile, one friendly, etc. All the product of, quote, counterintelligence people for the purpose of discrediting Benowitz. 
That is where we come up with some of it. Who's that guy? Anybody know? John Lear. John Lear. Son of William Lear, um, who invented the Lear jet. John Lear emerges in, um, in the late 1980s with a statement in 1987, initially uploaded to, um, I think, to be Paranet bulletin board system, sort of a proto, uh, proto-internet sort of thing. And in this, he, re- he reveals what he says is the truth about uh, MJ-12, and that this is far more frightening than anybody had, uh, had known. For example, quote, during the period of 1969 to 1971, MJ-12, representing the U.S. government, made a deal with these creatures. The deal was that in exchange for technology that they would provide to us, we agreed to ignore the abductions that were going on and suppress information on cattle mutilations. The aliens assured MJ-12 that the abductions were merely the ongoing monitoring of developing civilizations. In fact, Lear said, the purposes of the abductions turned out to be the insertion of a three-millimeter implant inside the nasal cavity for monitoring, tracking, and control of the abductee, implementation of a post-hypnotic suggestion to carry out a specific activity during a specific time period within the next two to five years, I read that right, I read this document for the first time right at the edge of that two to five year window. Like, it's like, oh my gosh, we're right in the, it could still happen. So as far as origin stories go, Ryan saw something. I read John Lear saying the aliens are gonna switch on all the abductees in the fifth column to Congress. That was my introduction <laughs> to, the, to the field. And the, the termination of some people so they could function as living sources for biological substances. Along with Lear, quote, we cannot deny weather modification and the spraying of our skies. Really all you need to do is look up in the sky to know that something is very wrong. We are also dealing with the Fukushima disaster, geoengineering, genetically modified foods, false flags in the news, media control, mind control, possible fake alien invasion scenarios, possible fake ascended master scenarios and the threatening controlled collapse of the economy, martial law, FEMA camps, and the chipping of civilians. Wow. That's pretty much all of it. That's every significant conspiracy trend of the last 30 years in one paragraph. And it's all true. The 1954 Eisenhower meeting is a great example of how UFO culture used and reused a story altering details and timelines to suit various individuals' purposes over the decades. Those purposes, being cynical, I acknowledge that, those purposes are all often gaining notoriety of differentiating themselves from other people who are telling nearly identical stories. But I saw it first, or I saw the document that wasn't disinformation. You fell for the 1953 treaty, but I know it was the 1954. You know, the 1953 treaty, I saw that document too, and I know from a fact from when I was in the Navy that that was pure disinformation. I have secret knowledge that makes me better than you, that makes my book better than your book, that makes my appearance at a conference better than your appearance at a conference. It's a very competitive capitalistic industry, uh, ufology, which um, makes it fun. 
you know, an American mythos in the making and people borrowing from one theory, one conspiracy to another. But at the root of a lot of this, there really is the intelligence community, you know, and the role that government plays in this. Now, Walter, you've got a background in that. And, of course, I know that, you know, some have even seen you as being strange, though it may seem to us, knowing this wonderful guy. (laughs) I love talking with Walter. I liked talking with him before (laughs) I met him, but now I really like him. Uh, but but you people, but people but people hear you and they say hold on you used to work for the air force you were a special yeah. agent and they're yeah. immediately they're immediately suspicious and how does that feel? Well, what's interesting is you know <laughs> some of the people that be immediately suspicious of me would embrace you know Louis Elizondo and Kate Green and right. all the guys at TV. My house changed. You know, it's like wait wait a minute how does this make sense? <laughs> and um, yeah you know I've I've got that being an XOSI guy because there's very few of us in this field um, so you know naturally you know you get some ire because there's people out there that think that OSI are the, 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 the hand behind you know keeping all the secrecy we're the ones blocking the truth from the people right. specifically the Air Force OSI this this one military branch's investigative unit you know there's the CIA NSA there's all these others but the OSI yeah. relatively little OSI can be the one who blocks yeah. you know, the truth so yeah you know your personal experience though in so much of this now you, you talked about what your father told you even wrote a book about your, your dad and his experience and what he told you at an early mm-hmm. age tell us a little bit about that well the book is Shimmering Light and for a few decades my dad had told me this same story about being briefed on um, what happened at Roswell and then being told, you know, the reason you guys, he and the guys he was working with, the reason you guys are being told this is because it's happened again. Now, this was 1958, and they said it happened again in eastern Arizona, and according to my dad's story, they were then flown to uh, Arizona and were part of this retrieval um, operation. And... You know, he had told me this for years, and I finally decided, well, you know, a couple of years. He passed away in, uh, 10 years ago now, mm. this summer, yeah. this June, next month. And um, I finally decided, you know what, I really need to take a look at this. And there was his version, you know, there was what was really going on in history. There was all sorts of stuff in the mix, and what I did was I just kind of looked at all of it as objectively as possible, like an objective investigator. Mm-hmm. And that's what the book does. It says, look, here's what my dad told me, but here's possibly why that was a planted narrative. Because oh, really? this was the MK Ultra era. Um, when they were really digging into that, it was uh, the CIA, and it was classified, and the military branches were being allowed. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. How to observe and maybe use some of this. And the, it really turned the Air Force on, MK Ultra did. The Air Force uh, of all the military branches really, really liked the MK Ultra stuff. Really? And, and ran off and started doing their own. And this was the context in which my dad was in the Air Force you know, and having this this experience that he was relating to me, so I had to, as fun as my dad's story is, I had to consider that what he remembered was this fake narrative put in his memory using the MK Ultra technology, so to speak, to suppress you know a classified operation, and the book gets into. You know the Although, details. As fun as his story is, sure. it just might simply not be the truth. Well, and you know, and even further, you know, whittle it kind of down. I mean, it would take even less than mind control or the reality of a CIA program like that uh, to instill in the minds of somebody a false narrative. Which is interesting because you know that's what Bill Cooper always claimed. Bill Cooper's mm-hmm. claim had always been that the government lied to me. They've <laughs> lied to everybody. I was led to believe MJ twelve was real, and mm-hmm. now. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm the first to tell you I'm wrong. Yeah, right. Like, as you pointed out earlier, <laughs> the very Eric, last to tell people he's the very. <laughs> I want to get back around to Bill Cooper a little later, too. You know, Ryan, we got to talk for a moment about your uh, fine lecture that you gave today because, again, you, I, I told you this before. Uh, and with background in broadcast myself, I mean, you know, I see what you do as being fundamentally the role of a journalist. Mm-hmm. You know, you ask people, and with Ryan's lectures, they're always fun because he, he gets the people who he's talking about to film videos of themselves telling the narrative, explaining their stories. And so it was really great. And, and, and I had no idea, none whatsoever, that so many people uh, and people that we knew, you and I both, that they had all seen sea monsters. <laughs> just okay, sorry. Full disclosure, folks. So Paul Kimball's been giving this poor young man hell all week because he... He absolutely, <laughs> he had been led to believe, Ryan Sprague, that he was going to come up here and talk about UFOs. But all along, Ryan, <laughs> Paul had had another idea. Yep. And it involved ele- electron sea monsters. Almost, Apparently, yeah. man. Hey, you know what? Whatever gets me here on their, on uh, Mr. Kimball's dime, I'm fine with. You want yeah. me to talk about... Uh, that's right. Well, that's what I said. I said, look, I'll take one for the team here, Ryan, and I'll give a lecture on sea monsters. But do, <laughs> doing his due diligence, Ryan gets up there to give his UFO lecture and makes a phony opening tile with sea monsters on it. <laughs> uh, but I mean, I'm interested in sea monsters, too. But what you actually had to talk about had to do with people's personal experiences more in relation to UFO experiences. I, I loved seeing the late John Mack. Yeah. Come up in the lecture and his discussion. It's been a while. Yeah, let's talk about that incident that he was investigating, and also the testimony of the children from South Africa who had, who he'd uh, interviewed and talked with about yeah. what they saw. Yeah, absolutely. So this was back in '94. Uh, um, this was in Rua, Zimbabwe, at the Aerial School. Oh, I'm sorry, Zimbabwe. I said South Africa. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and 62 children were on the 
playground, mm-hmm. and some of them noticed some some shimmering lights, Mr. Bosley, no. um, <laughs> in the distance. They uh, saw some flashes, and suddenly this disc-shaped craft lands just outside the schoolyard behind some trees. Uh, a bunch of the children go over to check this thing out, and they see two beings in front of the craft. Now, these kids had never experienced anything like this before, I would assume. Uh, some of them approach and actually made eye contact with these beings. Uh, some claim to have had messages uh, downloaded, almost, telepathically. Uh, some said that the beings, you know, were translucent, shimmering. Some said they were gray with black wraparound eyes. So an interesting, you know, diversity of witness accounts. But again, these were 62 school children. And uh, no adults were at the site when this happened. So they, the kids freak out. They go inside, tell their teachers. The teachers try to calm them down. This thing, you know, before they went in to see the teachers, shoots off, disappears, and uh, yeah, that's that's kind of the the case in a nutshell. And that's when Mr. Mack got involved. Yeah, John Mack uh, goes and he interviews a number of these uh, school children, which is interesting because it was only certain age groups that saw this. Yes, there was a fence, an actual physical fence that separated some of the other kids who were outside playing. None of whom actually saw this experience. Uh, one of the defining characteristics in the testimony given by the children, the drawings that they procured, uh, had been the large, again, egg-shaped eyes, black mostly. Some of the children described either, you know, what might be viewed as a, a white uh, pupil mm-hmm. of, of sorts, almost ovoid, I guess, in, in shape, or possibly a reflective kind of a surface on the exterior of this large black tear-shaped eye. And, and many of the children were describing this as being frightening to them. They were afraid. Um, you know, one thing does come to mind. Uh, you know, I'm sure there will be people who will be upset at me even asking this, but as John is talking with one of the kids in one of the videos, he's asking, how did that make you feel? And the child says, well, I don't know. He says, did it scare you? Yeah. Why did it scare you? What, what scared you? And, and I did almost feel a little like you might be able to say that there was uh, some leading in the question. That's interesting you bring that up. Did you uh, notice it also? I, I, that was the one moment where I think Mac may have slipped in his counseling of these children is he, even before this, he was such a respected psychiatrist. Absolutely. Um, at, you know, worked at Harvard Medical School, um, had written Pulitzer Prize winning books. It, it's incredible what the man has done. Mm-hmm. Now, a gentleman asked me after the talk, was he a child psychiatrist? And no, he was not. Right. He was not used to dealing with children. Um, and I was trying to catch him in a leading question throughout mm-hmm. those interviews. Mm-hmm. And that was the only time where I'm like, ooh, you yeah. slipped a little there. And, and, was, and that's a very crucial question. Well, it is. And, and the reason why is because the result of the line of questions comes back around to, uh, so you may you felt in, threatened by this. What did the threat feel like? And the child ultimately ends up saying, I felt like they wanted to come and take me away. Mm-hmm. He says, so you felt like they, they were going to come and try and capture you and take you. Yeah. Which kind of leads back into this abduction narrative. Now, I'm not saying that abductions don't happen or that they do. I'm merely saying, though, that we have to be very careful, even with someone as respected and renowned as John Mack, uh, in terms of how we interpret testimony. Did the child say, these creatures were coming down and trying to take us away? Or is the psychologist, uh, you know, again, a renowned psychologist in this instance, are they the ones who are kind of driving that narrative? Which kind of brings us around to, even though he's not here right now, he's supposed to be meeting us for dinner, 
but our good friend uh, Greg Bishop and his idea of a co-creation mm. hypothesis. I do wonder sometimes, what role does our belief in all this stuff play in how we perceive the phenomena? And guys, I mean, even if we take away the idea of, well, we're feeding into it in an energetic way and creating tulpas and all this kind of stuff. No, no, bring it down to pure sociology. What you think the phenomena is colors the way that you perceive it. I mean, what would you say about that? I, I think um, I think it was Greg who who talked about sort of the science of what our brain interpolates into the actual visual information that we receive. So just on a basic physiological level, what we see, what we what our brain tells us we're seeing might not be precisely what we're seeing or what another person would see because. We might see those things, uh, those things in different ways. So physiologically and, and, and neurologically, that, that's that's certainly uh, certainly a thing. Um, depending on what your interests are, um, somebody sees something. Two people see something weird in the sky. One person, one of us, for example, might think UFO, and the other person's brain might not jump to that conclusion immediately, and might come to some other conclusion just based on on what. They, or they might not even notice anything strange. Somebody looking up the sky would see that light's not moving the way it should, and somebody else would be like, lights, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I think there, there is, I mean, just on a basic, practical, mechanical level, there are things we, we bring to it. Oh, absolutely. You know, Walter, something that you and I have talked a lot about over the last couple of days is synchronicity, and I brought it up in my lecture in the context of you know, Carl Jung having coined that term, and again, the idea here is... The apparent connection between two events that are not causally related, but I know in your own experience, and I hope you can talk about this a little, you know, you've experienced what we might, for lack of a better term, call synchronicities. Does that play into this in your mind? Oh, certainly, because um, everything we're talking about has to do with that greater um, fabric of reality. And from my view and experience, the things we're calling synchronicities, these weird experiences we're having, these are threads in the fabric of reality, and and when you get to the point where you're experiencing the synchronicities, and I think Paul Kimball um, would agree with this, mm-hmm. you know, because he's been having these experiences as he discussed today. Um, when you get to that level where you're noticing the synchronicities, you've gotten down to that that base. Um, again, I use the word fabric that that base level that really um, runs through everything and might even be from where, you know, it emerges and either manifests into what it is or engages with your subconscious and um, gives you a a perception or an image to grasp Mm -hmm. and attempt to interpret, you know, in your own way. Um, but when you get onto this level that we're talking about, it gets you get into the purple in trying to describe yeah. <laughs> it because here's the thing: it's intended to be experienced, and it's intended to be experienced by an individual, for the most part, ultimately on an individual basis through individual interpretation is where you get the meaning from it. Um, it doesn't mean the things you're seeing aren't real, but when you begin to see the the synchronicities. You've you've gone in deep. You're mm-hmm. you're in there. And again, Paul was talking today 
about, you know, when you get into something, you get into this greater world we're talking about. And really, it's interesting how UFOs are the things that really each one of us individually, that's what you ask. Hey, what got you interested in all this weird stuff? For most of us, it starts with, well, it started out with an interest in UFOs. But when Paul was talking about you go into this thing, be it paranormal research or UFOs, and you get so far in that you feel like you can't get out, um, it's, uh, that's enough. In my mind, what I was thinking of is that aspect of all this where you're in there and you're seeing things you didn't see before you stepped in. And once you step in, there's no getting out because there's nothing to you. You were already, you, you really, in a way, were always in. What's happened is you've, your eyes have been opened, yes. the veil has been lifted, and now you can't unsee <laughs> the things that have been revealed to you. So they're, they're actually, I would say to Paul, now if he were here, I'd say, well, you can't get out because there is no getting out. No. You we're always in, but now you see more. Does that sound vague? Oh, See, yeah. I said it was completely. Yeah. Let me just get really personal for just a second because mm-hmm. it's a whole weekend. I've just been not quite in the days, but um, I, I, I keep kind of stepping outside of my own little reality and looking back at everything from you know a few feet outside, sort of a, a, a detached kind of a perspective or a disassociative state, you might say. Not quite an out of body experience, but I mean. Again, when I get around people who think like this, and, and we share these kind of experiences and this kind of general outlook on things, um, I can't help but both feel elated but also more perplexed than ever. And it's everything you were just describing, Walt, which is why I think, you know, again, for me, I, I come back to the idea of synchronicity. I mean, there's some who look at it in the purely psychological sense of, well, it's important because you assign that meaning to it. But I had this funny little mantra going on the other day where, uh, preparing the lecture, actually, that I was going to give up here at the Esoteric on this word simulacra keeps coming to my mind. Mm-hmm. And it led me to this science paper from the 1990s that actually posits a very innovative idea in my mind, which is that everything in our world, we humans, is, is so deeply rooted in symbolism and the symbolism and the, and the symbolic interactionism, to borrow a sociological mm-hmm. term, You know, we look at a chair and we know that a chair serves a a functional purpose and we have a word for it. So there's a language component, there's the cultural context, and there's inherently a a symbolism with that. And that everything in our environment is so symbolic that we are shielded from the actual reality, Mm -hmm. evolutionarily, linguistically, and otherwise. And it really gets me thinking that, again, you don't have to live in a simulation to recognize that we perceive a simulated sort of world, an augmented reality, as a result of our evolution. And for me, in that capacity, we function based on our ability to associate with and identify symbols, which makes synchronicity all the more important. And Jung, of course, had been someone who had always raised this question, what if the flying saucers play some sort of a similar kind of a symbolic and synchronistic role? Now, to be clear, again, he had also said, well, you know, the radar traces are pretty convincing. There must be something tangible, too. But I still can't help but wonder if, for some of us, Seeing the flying saucer, so to speak, whether or not it's actually a saucer or even flying, isn't representative of a deeper symbolic kind of interaction in our minds. What does the saucer mean to us and to each of us? Ryan, what does it mean to you? To me? I, I, you know, after interviewing so many witnesses and having had a sighting myself, um, I often question the motivation of whatever is behind it. And there's probably no singular answer or controller of the quote-unquote UFO phenomena. Um, But what I keep coming back to is that word meaning, like just finding meaning, whether it's, you know, through culture, through society, um, 
or your experience. I think whatever lay behind some of these UFO events, what they want is to see how you interpret what they did. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's their way of communicating. If they can't do it on our level in terms of words or uh, even symbolism, just to see how we interpret what they're trying to to do with us. Do you think that language can? Do you think that language can exist on a level deeper than or apart from actual language communication? As we know, I should say not oh, yeah. language. Should can communication exist on that level? I think so. I think you know. Again, I think emotion plays yeah. a very big role in this. Sure. Uh, maybe they're able to again. That that they is a big question, but mm-hmm. maybe they're able to uh, to know what we're feeling and want to see how we react to their presence. I, I, I don't know, um, but I do find emotion, feeling, impact, and aftermath extremely important in all of this paranormal, UFOs, esoterica, everything. To know the heart of a UFO is to know the mind of God. Aaron, <laughs> Aaron, what does it mean to you? Well, um, I, I got to be honest. To me personally, as a my personal life, not a lot. Um, apart from my my quite orthodox religious beliefs, I've had no supernatural experience of any kind in my entire life. And I've looked at like everything that could have possibly been weird. And I'm like, no, that wasn't weird, actually. What it means to me is it's another... The experiences people have are another lens through which we can examine the human past. Another is like... Anthropologists and sociologists are, are looking at the human present, through, or should be looking at the human present through these lenses. But I, I think it's, to me, I, I love the stories. That's what got me hooked, are the stories and the possibilities of what might be hidden. Mostly on a very sort of prosaic, mechanical, political level, what might be hidden, rather than, than deep philosophical things. But, um, but it's... It, I've had no experiences. I, I, I've never sought any out because I don't trust the idea of seeking it out because you sort of, I'm going to go find something weird. And then, <laughs> so then you're like, well, that, that was weird enough. Okay, I got it. Um, so, you know, people, you can fool yourself into, uh, like Holly was saying about the Ouija board today. Mm-hmm. You can unconsciously sort of do things, that, sort of unconsciously, consciously do them. But, um, but I, I think it's, it. The entire tapestry of the saucers, and I still call them the saucers, is it's one of the greatest untapped sources for interesting stories that's still out there. Because we've only scraped the surface of people's experiences, and we've only scraped the surface of what these experiences might mean, because we're still trapped in a lot of ways in this nuts and bolts paradigm that's been sort of imposed on the subject. So I, I think... To me, what it means is is unlimited storytelling potential. Well, I've said in the past that you know, for me, whether or not flying saucers, as we term them, exist is irrelevant because the fact that the idea alone exists mm-hmm. is influential on our culture, society, right. and frankly, perhaps our evolution. I mean, it's just as effective, even if it's an imaginary concept. But what about you, Walter? Are they imaginary? What do they mean to you? Well, I, I think there's. Um, multiple manifestations of these things. I think the nuts and bolts, mm-hmm. um, flying saucers, so to speak, exist. Um, and I have less of a problem with the nuts and bolts uh, manifestation than I do with the, um, oh, what's the word for it? The, the, the 
religionizing yeah. of the whole UFO thing. That the the whole Space Brothers are gonna get right with Ashtar, this man. And, <laughs> and this be a why, yeah, I'm the guy who raised his hand to question Stanton Friedman, you know. <laughs> the only yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I, I knew and you this was wrong with questioning. Well this, this is one of my peeves is the because they have this technology and they can travel across space and visit us, they're given this moral superiority. And humanity oh. is so bad, so bad, so bad. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not come from that perspective. I totally recognize the, that there's dark elements of humanity. I mean, I was in law enforcement, okay? Yeah. But I don't see humankind as this just this unworthy, you know, unshorn primate. And we're so uh, primitive and they... They are so advanced and wonderful. I, I just that just bugs me. Doesn't I, it become cult like almost? In that yeah, way? it's scary to think like that. It's because I think they're as human as we are, so to speak. Mm. I, I think these civilizations, you know, just because they can come here, you know, like look at us for instance. We went to the moon. Just say hypothetically that there's a civilization not as advanced as we were in 1969 on the moon, and they would see us. We know us. Were we that morally superior as right. beings in 1969? No, we only no, thought we, we were. Yeah, we. Yeah. Well, everyone thinks they are. <laughs> yeah. um, every civilization. So, but no, we could build a machine to go to the moon, and that's the way I see these these extraterrestrials. Is they can build these machines and cross space. So what? They have their jerks. They have their evil ones. Mm-hmm. They also have their great ones. I, I think for the most part, we're fine. We're good <laughs> beings. It, it, this. I'm not a. I'm not a. Like you know, a human defeatist, and oh, we're so bad and unwad. No, 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 no. We're supposed to be up on our feet, looking up, not cowering down on our knees and beating the hell out of ourselves yeah. over perceived sins and stuff. But um, the 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 UFO thing, um, the, the you know, I, there's the nuts and bolts reality of them. I believe. Um, I'm convinced. There is definitely the um, there. There's some mystical thing going on with a lot of these experiences. I mean, that's what Jung got into. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, if you look at uh, ancient Egyptology and um, hieroglyphs, there is a symbol that looks very much like a classic flying saucer. Yep. Have you seen it? It's yeah. got the saucer mm-hmm. shape and even the little the top, dome. the dome thing. And it's the it's the netter or the keter or something. And it has to do with the underworld, mm-hmm. which you look at the underworld as the subconscious and the subconscious is where our archetypes and all that. Mm-hmm. So that brings you, by way of ancient Egypt, to Jung again, in in our modern vernacular on this. And so, you know, there's a there's something going on right there that's a reality with UFOs. So it's a multi-faceted manifestation that we've been dealing with since, you know. Since the beginning. Yeah. And in fact, I think it's perhaps psychologically and maybe in the sense of the human soul, whatever that may or may not be, it's a deeper part of ourselves than we realize. Esotericon 2018, we've been talking with Ryan Sprague, UFO researcher, Aaron Goulias, history teacher, and also a UFO researcher and historian, Mr. Walter Bosley, a guy with a background in government and an interest in the esoteric. And of course, I'm Micah Hanks. It's been good talking with all you guys. Real quick, before we wrap up and head off to dinner with our Comrades, uh, why don't we get information on where everybody can find everybody's work? Ryan, start with you. Absolutely. Everything I do uh, is at somewhereintheskies.com. Um, you can find The Saucer Life at saucerlife.com and all the usual podcast outlets. All my books are print on demand at lulu.com. And 
you want to talk to me personally, I'm at Facebook, I'm at Twitter. You can find me out there. Excellent. That's Ryan Sprague, Aaron Gullius, Walter Bosley, and I'm Micah Hanks. And we'll wrap this up. And, guys, I think it's about time to enjoy a bit of the wonderful Nova Scotia cuisine. Yeah, I need some seafood, man. Let's go. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going for sushi. All right, that is it for this week's episode. Again, a huge thank you to Paul Kimball for having me at the 2018 Esotericon. I took tons of photos over the weekend. You can view all of those at the official Somewhere in the Skies Facebook group and on Instagram. Follow us at Somewhere Skies Pod. We're also on Twitter at Somewhere Skies. All past episodes, articles, news, and contact info can be found at somewhereintheskies.com. Please rate and review the show wherever possible. It helps more than you know. If you'd like to help the show grow in quality and quantity and receive bonus episodes and rewards, consider becoming a Patreon subscriber today. To learn more and to join, visit patreon.com slash somewhere skies. This week, I wanted to leave you with a song appropriately by Nova Scotia band Neon Dreams. This is their track called Shape of My Mind. I hope you enjoy and remember... Keep your feet on the ground, but never stop searching somewhere in the skies. Everybody's looking for a new sensation. And we're all expected to break expectations. I know it very well, and it ain't hard to tell. Everybody's looking for you, you, you. is produced by Third Kind Productions in association with the Entertainment One Podcast Network. To learn more, visit entertainmentonepodcast.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.